And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Full 60 featuring Craig Custance and presented by The Athletic. Each week, we'll dive into the biggest stories in hockey while bringing in unique voices to entertain and explain all aspects of the game. Hey, this is Craig, and welcome to this week's episode of The Full 60. I am thrilled to be joined by Doc Emmerich, the newly retired Doc Emmerich. Um, and that brings me great joy. There's there's some people I get super jealous of when they retire, and I resent them, I, if we're going to be completely honest here. And there's some people that I'm like, boy, have they earned any rest they've got, and Doc is in that category. Doc, how are you? Great. I've really appreciate your inviting me on this show before any of this even happened and i'm glad we can uh, live up to the time together this will be yeah, fun i am so excited about this uh, yeah i want to say for the record like this was we you know we we extended the invitation didn't know that you had huge news and and it's interesting doc because i'm i read the book that you did with kevin which was was fantastic and let me just plug that right away the book is called off mic and it and it's it, you know it's it's a story about how a kid from basketball crazy Indiana becomes one of the biggest names in, in hockey. And, um, and and it was funny to read this after you had announced your retirement because, it, it, you know, as this book progresses, it's it's clear that, you know, you hadn't made that decision um, as you're writing this. And then by the end, I'm like, oh, wait, you know, I, I'm, I'd love to know where your head was at. When did this, when did you kind of swirl all this around in your head and then ultimately make the decision? Sometime around the third round of the playoffs so i guess okay. that would have been after labor day um yeah. which would have been early september i guess uh it just did not even crystallized in my mind when the playoffs began and then as time passed uh and it wasn't exactly one event that triggered it although one of several that i've recalled since then was uh, brian boucher was talking about goaltending and he mentioned the name ken dryden and I thought to myself, you know, the first year out of the last 50 that I was covering the Penguins in Pittsburgh for an evening newspaper, uh, Ken Dryden was a rookie. And I'm thinking, gee, a lot of time has passed since then. And what a career he had as a player with all those Stanley Cups. I think it was six. And, and uh, you guys can check me on that and then and then of course the career he had in management and and all of the other interesting things that he's done since then and uh and then here i am still working along and i've uh, had all of those flights since then and all of those travels overseas and everything else and i'm thanks to nbc protecting me with my own home studio i am still well and healthy and my wife is too and all of those even round numbers of uh, 40 years doing games in the NHL and 50 since that time and 60 since I saw my first game started to add up and thinking maybe this is a good time to be calling it a career of play-by-play -play and be able to enjoy some time together while we still have 
some good years to do some of those things. It may not be travel right away because that's not an easy thing in the COVID climate here in the States to do, but it still is, um, I think, the good decision to make right now. How much, and I don't know, you don't strike me as like a um, egotistical, like I want to go out uh, as the cup's being handed, or like. but I'm sure in some mind you had a vision of what your last game would look like, and nothing this year has looked like any visions any of us has had. How much were you like, hey, I'd rather go out in a normal setting, or like, did that weigh at all on you? Yeah, it did. The last chapter yeah. of the book, as a matter of fact, was kind of the way I envisioned it, and it was totally opposite from the way it played out because I was doing the last game uh, was a 2 nothing victory by Tampa Bay over Dallas that I was sitting at home and Eddie Olchek and Brian Boucher were out in Edmonton. Mm -hmm. And the, the last chapter described uh, being able to watch some captain of some team in either a cheering arena or a meaningfully silent one because the home team had lost raising the Stanley Cup. So that's how I thought it would all play out. But was I ever wrong? Because most of that was authored and, and finished off before this bizarre part of 2020 took place. Uh, it was not any way that I thought it would ever happen, but that's how it did happen. And so there it was. It's, uh, you, you cannot oftentimes, despite all the conspiracy in the world, predict how uh, your career will end. And fortunately, I got to choose that, and NBC enabled me to do that. There were, Craig, a couple of, of points in my life where I was, I was allowed the opportunity. When I turned 65, yeah. uh, it became, you know, there was, there was no real reason for me to take pride in the fact I was doing 120 games a year mm -hmm. uh, because I was doing all the devil's games that didn't conflict. I was doing games on versus and, and, uh, and NBC's games right to the end. So that was the year that uh, I called Lou Lamorello and said, Lou, you know, you always said before you make any major decision, look in the mirror and look at your birth certificate. And so I quoted him to himself and said, this is the time that I need to just do NBC. And he was very gracious and understood that. And then when I turned 70, I pulled back on the number of games I did for NBC because I was doing two a week, plus playoffs, of course, and that's every other night. Yeah. Um, but the two a week required six days out of seven because there's travel the day before, so you can be there the night before and make sure you're there, and then go to the morning skates the day of the game and then do the game and then uh, return the next morning and then do the same thing again for the second game. So that became one game a week during the regular season on average. And then of course the playoffs are the playoffs. And so it's a little helter-skelter for two months, but it's only two months and not nine. And yeah. then there was this, which is, they've enabled me to do some essays, which is wonderful, because I still get a team jersey and are on the roster, but uh, <laughs> just not doing the same role that I had for the past 47. Now, uh, are, can we expect any cameos? Will you be like, hey, I might drop in and do a Winter Classic? No. Now again. <laughs> no. That's, it's, a, it's, a very, uh, it's a very normal question to ask. No, there, there is no magnetic draw for me back to a headset microphone, only to do a little writing and maybe some voiceover now and then, but not back to that. Um, there are other people that really do that well, too, 
and the magnetic draw is not there. It just isn't. But I sure do take pleasure in the years that I had that, and I had a chance to, to see Winter Classics and to do Olympic Games and to do some of the wonderful teams in Philadelphia and New Jersey that I covered on a regular basis. Those, those are a part of great memories for me. Um, I, 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 I want to talk a little bit about the book and the writing process. It, it, you know, how much were you trying to balance your story with sharing kind of hockey stories? I, I found that interesting how it, there was a little bit of back and forth, right? It was, you know, here's a bit of my childhood. And then, hey, here's, here's some just, I think if you're a hockey fan, you'll love this. Um, how, what, what was that balance like for you as a writer? Well, the hockey stories were far more interesting to me and I thought to the reader than what my life was because not many people around the world, I think, and I'm not being falsely modest, are interested right. in rural Indiana and a population of 600 people uh, and what small town rural Indiana life might be like. But it is a part of my background, and so it is in an autobiography, you know, people at least want you to address where you came from because it does tell a part of the story of how bizarre it was that you got to where you wanted to be in the bright lights of calling National Hockey League games from uh, such a, a, a small town beginning. So that part needed to be covered. But uh, Kevin and I talked at length about this, and yeah. he tried to encourage me to include some of that rather than just making it a collection of minor league and major league stories. So we, uh, and he had the job of weaving it in. You know, I always thought it was odd whenever I see these books in bookstores that are like mine, that the, the top billing and the large print goes to the person who did not do all the hard work. Uh, I did a lot of writing over six years time and realized yeah. that I was never gonna get the book done because I couldn't organize it. Mm. And in 18 months time, and three interviews, Kevin took what I had feebly written, and it was a stack about the size of a ream of paper that he waded through of things that I had written clumsily, but had compiled some stories. And then he did three interviews at length with me, and then pulled yeah. it all together and put all the chapters together, and he did the heavy lifting, and he gets the small print on the front page. Tell me about it, Doc. As a writer, I, I agree. I think it should be reversed. No, I love it. it yeah, great. no, I'll bet you do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it's so. It, I'm not surprised to hear you say that. I'm going to tell you from my perspective, and maybe it's. And I bet you, your fans would agree with this. It, it, like I found the stuff about your life most interesting, because you know here's you know you're somebody who has been you've been like a part of people's family right and there's so much we didn't know about you or at least i didn't and so i really found myself drawn to the stories of 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 your path and and you know your first jobs and and your your childhood um and maybe that's unique because i am in media and i you know i'm in the hockey space but i, I my guess is i think a lot of people will feel that way I hope so, because there, there are some passages in the book that uh, you have to tolerate to get to the, to get to the <laughs> funny stories. Um, I, you know, I, I know that the technique is not to give away stories, but I, I, you yeah, know, I, right. just, I, I liked what I didn't get to do this year in the playoffs and what no one else got to do. What I liked to do was to be in the hallway with guys like Ken Hitchcock mm. and 
you couldn't be in the hallways with coaches because there were restrictions and they began even before that last game that Eddie and I did side by side March 11th in Chicago between San Jose and Chicago. Even then restrictions had been handed down that we couldn't be side by side with coaches anymore. That had to be in a in a public setting with a lot of chairs in front like it was during the Stanley Cup final in most years when they were at a table in front and you were uh, in mass in back and there was no chance to really speak with them. You couldn't go into a dressing room on March the 8th and from that point on to sit next to a player and that's where the real fun was. But uh, one, of the, one of the very brief stories that's in the introduction to the book uh, about about passes and it may not play well in this setting but but Ken Hitchcock of course was this guy that would always have some droll thing to say that was always hilarious to me and he was coaching the Flyers and it was Madison Square Garden and this was during the era when the circus would be playing in the afternoon and the hockey games were at night and they would they would gun two or three performances of the circus beginning in the morning because the school kids would come in and then the transformation would take place and all the all the dust and the dirt from the circus would be hauled off and plowed off and then the ice would be ready in the evening. And the elephants were uh, at that point, they were back on the fifth floor in one corner and you could not only see them, but there was an aroma that the elephants gave off, or at least what they left behind. I mean, you knew <laughs> a circus was going on when you went into the rink that day. And so we had our, our mandatory session with the coaches before the game, rights holder conferences they were. And I simply asked Ken before the game, I said, you know, the circus was here and uh, for three performances today, do you think that'll affect the ice? And he said, no, we just uh, went back and we spoke with the elephants and they said it was fine and if it was good <laughs> enough for them, should be good enough for us. And the Flyers won the game by a big margin. I think the score was six to three. And uh, it, it may not play that well in this setting, but it struck me as funny that day and so I included it in the book, well, along with a lot of other quotes that came from my having a pass in my hand that enabled me to be the conduit between the coaches and the players, as well as the viewers or the listeners to the to the broadcast. Yeah, I like that's. I think everybody pulled this summer's bubble off, and the you know I, I enjoyed the the broadcast was great. The, from our perspective, from the media, we were able to tell some stories. But over the long haul, you know, the more we were relying on the stories we already knew and telling some of those, in the long haul, not having that access. In, in you not being able to sit down next to a player, which I've seen you do a million times in a dressing room, and, and get some anecdote that is used later on, I, I think there would have been, if we continue to do this over years and just re rely on Zoom, it's, it would impact the, you know, that connection with viewers. Yeah, for sure. And, and you're absolutely right. We did rely on, at least I did, relied on what I already had that I had either used once before or hadn't used yet. That's right. uh, and realized uh, this was my chance to get it in. And, and keep in mind at that time, uh, until latter part of the third round and in the final, I didn't know that this was going to be my last anyway. And, you know, part of the reason, Kevin was mentioning to me yesterday that there were some people that thought that it was all conspiratorial on the launch of the book. Believe me, I didn't. The, <laughs> the launch of the book was, was known six months before, yeah. and I certainly did not, uh, did not plan this out. The other thing, too, is that 
once the playoffs were over, and that was no time to make an announcement like that because the, it was about the athletes at that point, as well it was with the draft, as well it was with free agency. And so the window to, um, to know what was on my mind and to impart that to NBC and then to make an announcement when it didn't crowd into what else was going on with the players but ahead of the launch date, which had been determined six months before, there was really only about one or two days to do it and to have the people that were editing what NBC wanted me to do, which was an essay saying goodbye. Uh, it, was, it was the day before the launch. That was the only date that we could really do it. So there it was. It wasn't, it was accidental, but it was uh, certainly not conspiratorial. But anyway, it made, it made last week extremely busy. And there are still some people who sent me some kind text messages, and I'm just now reading them, even though it's been mm. a week. Not surprising the the response of people outpouring. I, and, I, and I'm guessing you only saw the tip of the iceberg. Like I'm, I, I unfortunately have to live on social media, and and I saw people, it's person after person, sharing a Doc Emmerich story that was was so touching. What was it like from your perspective to to kind it of it was to awesome, and especially the the sad part was that I was not getting to the text messages sent on Monday, the day of the announcement, until Sunday morning. So yeah. now there are people that sent these kind words out, and six days they didn't hear from me. And I don't know what was going through their mind, because some of the things they said were so touching, and they, you know, it's, it's almost like saying something wonderful to someone and then having them not react to it. Like, does it mean <laughs> right. anything to them? Right. And it, I, I began each response, and I did uh, about 120 of them on Sunday. I began oh each response with a bit of an apology that, um, please don't be offended, I just am now getting to read this, and, and it was wonderful. But it's, it's what happens sometimes when you get overwhelmed. And uh, in a couple of the responses to more, more famous people, I said, if you ever retire, don't announce it and then launch a book the next day. <laughs> because yeah. you'll get overwhelmed and you won't be able to catch your breath until a Sunday morning after. Uh, yeah. so, <laughs> but uh, I, I hope people are understanding of this. There were some people that are Hall of Famers that did send wonderful messages, and I didn't read them for five days. What an insult. But I didn't. Uh, it's, it's sad. I, I think I think you've built up so much equity that everybody, you know, you get a free pass, especially this well, week of all weeks. I sure hope so. I wonder when we are going to start again. Uh, you know, I'm like I'm like all the fans. You sort of count down on the calendar to when the next season starts, and yeah. I'm looking forward to see how these teams that have made moves in the off season how they look when it all gets going. But that's all a part of the uncertainty that we live with, isn't it? We it know is. it's going to be in 2021, but we really can't say for sure when. I talked to someone in Minnesota this morning early, and they were already disappointed that the Winter Classic couldn't be assured, that now it had been postponed, and the league is very good at making those up, as they did at yeah. the University of Michigan by one year when the, when the lockout took care of that. But, um, you know, they were, they were disappointed too, but you can understand how the league just can't say anything anything for certain when when the puck is being held by a virus and the face-off mm. is not controlled by a referee you know what I, I was just having a conversation with my wife yesterday 
because I'm constant, like, I feel like I'm stressed about, like, all the stuff that we can't control. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to, like, take today and not, you know, I'm sitting here trying to, like, what's going to happen with next season? What's going to happen with whatever? And I'm like, you know what? We have time right now to enjoy being around each other. And I'm like, that's been my approach. You know what I mean? You've got it right. You've got it absolutely yeah. right. And we still have some color here in our part of the world and it's, uh, it's color to be enjoyed. It's, uh, there's still some outdoor days and, and, uh, we're, we're forecast to have a 50 degree day tomorrow and it might be the last one because mm. we're nearing November. Uh, in our part of Michigan, it might be. So you're absolutely right. You've, uh, you and she have taken the right approach. It's an approach that corresponds to the autumn of our lives here at the age group that we are. I won't give away my wife's age, but I'm 74, <laughs> and we're pretty close. Let's just say it that way. And yeah. so this is a time when we can do some of those things, although right now travel's not one of them. Right. All right. I want to take a break, and I want to get at um, – it's 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 – not often that we have somebody as accomplished in, in, in like the titan of their industry like you are. And I want to tap into that insight for people listening that maybe even want to be in the space that you have occupied. So hold on one second. We're going to get into that. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. So, Doc, I, so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of this. I think by nature, I come from a family of teachers and I'm, you know, I'm speaking at Michigan State this week and I always like to share what I've learned and and I feel like you probably are the same way. Like and, and you you alluded to this in the book a couple of times. How often people ask you about getting into the industry and, and the and the path that you took. And I I wanted to spend a little bit of time on that because you know in reading this in 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 you know your your trip to you know, Port Huron and and then into the Flyers organization. How much do you think people that want to be in the space and they want to be in in broadcast? can replicate this now or do you feel like this is a path that doesn't exist anymore oh i think it still does as a matter of fact i think the law of averages is probably greater now than it was for me um i get a chance to speak to um, journalism classes now and then and if the class is small enough i have them uh, one by one stand and recall the first event of a sport that they attended. Mm. Um, doesn't need to be major league, can be college or minor league, because my first major event was a minor league game 60 years ago. And recall what they remember about it. And the first one, maybe not the second, but the first one uh, registers with people and they can describe 
the color of the uniforms, what they remember about the field, or in the case of hockey, the rink, mm -hmm. and who they were with. They may they usually remember the teams. They may not remember the exact score, but as they recall it, there's usually a smile on their face, even though it may be eight o'clock in the morning when the class meets, and they may be really tired. They recall it with a smile on their face, and when it's all done. I usually say to them, now multiply that experience times 3,000 and multiply that experience times 40 years. And I encourage you, if you have any interest in getting into this line of work, do it and don't quit because there will be rejection in either broadcasting or writing, there will be people that will turn you down. There will be people that will say you can't do it, but don't listen to them. If you believe in your skills, go for it. Yeah. Because you get in free. You get a good seat <laughs> for the game. You get to work around some of the finest athletes and best people that you'll ever meet. Yeah. And later on in life, you'll learn that something comes either in the mail or by direct deposit into your checking account twice a month. And as you look back, as I look back on it, it's, it's been the most wonderful way to earn a living that I could ever imagine. But to do it, it helps to have people that will look or listen to your work and give you an honest opinion. And so that's what I've offered back through the last 15 or 20 years to aspiring broadcasters. And I usually listen to them in August. It's yeah. free for nothing. And in some public forums, I've offered my email address so that they can contact me and send some of their work. There's one young man who is nine in Cleveland who, uh, who let me listen to his work that was called with the sound down on television. And obviously someone that young, um, I always encourage them all, but someone that young, you, uh, you obviously you do a, uh, an evaluation over the telephone right. and with uh, one of the two parents uh, eavesdropping on the phone and right. anyone high school age or younger, well, you, you make sure that the parents are copied with any communications. But it's amazing how good a lot of these kids are and how their ambition is so good. And, and I, am, um, I am so pleased that there are three or four of them that I have listened to that I had no big hand in promoting, but one of them is the radio guy in Edmonton, one is the radio guy in Vegas, and one is the radio guy in Washington. That's amazing. And, and after, after those years, I have saved what they sent me because some of it was tangible rather than electronic and emails and I saved it as a souvenir because that was them then and now I can listen to them on my iPhone now. Mm. I love that. It's it's almost like we uh, you know they have the you know Mike Babcock coaching tree you've got the Doc Emmerich announcer tree. <laughs> I'm not sure how much influence I had but it sure is heartening to hear what they were like then and they were pretty good. Yeah. But to hear them now and all it takes is just repetition. You know that. When you write that first article, uh, it's, I can appreciate it because I did it for one year, and I would write three or four times before I dropped it in the slot. 
at the newspaper because it was an evening paper. I had until three or four in the morning to, to fine tune what I wrote about the penguins of 70, 71 and tear it up and try it again. But um, you've learned, you've of course learned how to write fast. But the, the one that you wrote for the 40th uh, game was far better than the one you wrote for the first one. It's just what repetition helps you do. And when, it, when these guys wind up doing a full season and then it's 10 full seasons, my goodness, how good are you? And so that's one of the things I always encourage kids to do. Even if you wind up doing the game to yourself, you have an audience of one, but you did a game. And if you did 10 games to yourself in the corner of an arena and you have a recording of it, you did 10 games. Right. And you may have made a lot of mistakes, but no one heard them. But you still did that game. And you still have the experience of doing it and listening to it and fine-tuning what you did. And I see kids doing this. And I don't know if it's – and maybe that's a standard practice. But like, there's a there's a kid – I say kid. I don't know how old. Maybe in his 20s. Maybe not, not even that old. But when I go to games uh, at Little Caesars Arena and he's sitting in the press box and he's broadcasting it and for just to get better. Like the, just putting in the time. And I don't even know who's listening. Yeah, um, you I see him that. in the press box there, and there is a there is a young man who has a marvelous voice who is in the top of the press box at Little Caesars Arena, and he has communicated with me and he sent me his work. And yeah. one night I was there with a group and I was not working, and I saw him there and I said to myself, I'm going to go up there and just sit next to him and listen. And my goodness, was he ever, he was, you know, when you, when you get an audio track that's sent to you on an email, yeah, it sounds pretty good. And right. then when you see it matched up with the game you're watching, it's really good. Really, really good. My guess is we're talking about the same person. And, and you just know, like, this person's going to be successful. Like, that dedication to improvement and self-improvement and just the craft you know they're going to be successful and and i sense it with him yeah and, very rich voice and uh, yeah, I, yeah. I hope it, I wish it I does not uh seem distinctive at all or in any way that i'm not it's a young african-american man yeah who has a very rich voice and has a wonderful description of a hockey game and he's he's going to progress he'll get a job somewhere because he's so good yeah um, absolutely. So, uh, and, and it's funny reading your, you know, your experiences early on. One thing I, I noticed because I'm like, I'm a big, um, you know, personal development nerd. Like I love the stuff and you casually reference like Dale Carnegie classes and taking those. Um, what inspired you to do that at that age? And, and what did you learn? Uh, the sales manager at the radio station and I and his wife went to dinner one night shortly after I'd gotten there. And then about two weeks later, he spoke to me in the hallway and he said, you know, I've got to be honest with you. One of the things that I came away with after we had dinner, and it kind of hurt what he said, he said, you know, I've been around sports guys and they usually have some kind of personality, but you, you seem like a, a, like a guy that you'd run into putting books in a library. Hmm. And I think you'd really benefit from the Dale Carnegie course and this station will pay half your tuition. 
I've seen other guys here that have taken it and it changes them. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, initially, how would you feel when somebody told you that? You'd feel, yeah, pretty bad. I don't yeah, know how I'd take that. <laughs> you'd feel insulted. But, you know, it was him and his wife. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure he shared that opinion with her. And But you know what? Um, the station did pay half. I paid half. And I invested the number of nights that were required to complete the course. And it sure enough did. It was one of the most important things. And that, again, was one of those moments in my life when someone gave me an opinion. And mm -hmm. it wasn't necessarily of my work. It was of me. And I listened to it, and it did make a difference. And it was shortly after I went through that course that I got a chance to progress and move ahead to Portland, Maine in the American League, and that was a Flyers farm team. And they were successful, and uh, that was part of many events in my life that changed my world. It's not just one person along the way, it's just a ton of them. And I've sought to address um, uh, all of them that I can remember and find snail mail addresses with written notes in the last five years because a lot of times you never say thank you or you do in an email or you do in a handshake after you hurry through an airport to somebody. But oftentimes if you send something that is in writing, first the post office needs the money anyway, and secondly, uh, it's something that they can hold on to and maybe it comes at a time in their life when they are retired and they look back and wonder as one person did when he wrote me back I wonder if I made a difference for anybody and There is living evidence that in fact they did Are you um, intentional about that in that you're like you take some time each day to do it or is it when you're just feeling inspired Initially, I did. I tried to do five a day. One of the challenges I had was to find snail mail addresses of people that were older than I was, who had retired and in many cases uh, changed addresses. I had some help from one of the writers in the NHL who had access to, as maybe you do, uh, some newspaper research uh, engines that enabled them to trace addresses and he came up with 10 real hard ones for me that I was able to go to further. But I w I've been able to write over 300 people that had uh, some sort of place in my life and in my advancement and that's probably not even half but they are the ones I can think of that have not passed away that have made a difference like that. It's interesting. We I had um... We had a conversation with Brian Burke, and he has a similar thing, and you know he he's written about that. And then I I, I didn't I guess I didn't realize this. You guys crossed paths in Portland pretty early on in his career. Yeah, we talked about that two days ago. He was one of the guys that sent me a text that I did not respond to for five days, and he was very understanding about it, not bothering him. But uh, he is, uh, as you know, in the book and. He corrected me on a couple of the of the more creative facts that I had in the book about his <laughs> night in Springfield. Um, the the story, and we probably should, for the record, correct the fact that the book had the the uh, story in Springfield is that Brian was in law school after he had won the championship with our team the year before, and he came down to watch some of his former teammates play for the Maine Mariners against Springfield, and there. Uh, he got on the headset microphone with me and broadcast the game 
with me back to Portland because he was such a loved figure for only one year in Maine. And midway in the second period, there was a a ruckus down near the bench. And the last words that he said to the audience back in Portland, Doc, I got to go. The boys need my help. That much was accurate. Uh, As it turned out, what happened, and maybe he clarified it for you, was that one of the players had an injury and had to go to the dressing room and the trainer and the assistant trainer were going with him. And it was at that point that the fans started to give the trainer, assistant trainer and the one player difficulty going back to the dressing room. So it was not at the bench area. It was on the way from the bench area to the dressing room. And Brian decided, I better go down and help them. Uh, But by the time he got there, security had arrived. So for accuracy, he did not throw a punch. But he was ready if that was the case. (laughs) I'm sure he was. Um, And, and, you know, it was right around this this time where you – and I want to kind of tie this together with Dale Carnegie mention – you said you learned that, and I'm going to read this quote. You said you tried to sense what was important about each person when you were talking to them, and and this was kind of a change in your approach. And and it's clear that's that's how you approach people. Like how, what does that look like to you, and in, in when you're interacting with people, like how do you go about doing that in like short exchanges that are impactful? Well, one of the things. Uh is that Dale Carnegie says the most important thing to any person is the sound of their own name. Now, some of that is just using the name, but the other part of it is getting the name right. And that gave birth, uh, thanks to Dick Irvin, hearing what I had to say about the pronunciations of names and how we went into each arena. And we'd always go to the other announcer and ask how the names were said. Um, So the idea was for each announcer to go in the fall at training camp and ask any questionable pronunciations of the player and how he wanted his name said. Some players are more blasé about it than others. Some really care about how they want their name said. So that's the first thing. And the other thing, too, is that I've always found with players, almost all of them are never shy about talking about family, unless there is some sort of troubled past with family members. They almost always like to talk about family. I always enjoy telling stories about family, and here's one I never yes. got to use. Great. Um, equipment guys and, and trainers oftentimes are one of our biggest helps when it comes to filling us in on something. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was the night before the Winter Classic in Dallas at the Cotton Bowl. One of the guys with the Dallas Star said, have you heard Raddick Fox's story? I said, no, uh, as a young man from the Czech Republic. And so he told, he, they told me sort of the thumbnail of the story, and I said, is he still here? Because many of the players had dressed and were, were headed out, and they said, let me go back and check, and sure enough, he was. So I got a chance to spend 10 minutes with him and verify and ask him more about the story. I'll get to the story in just a second. But... In, a, in an extravaganza like the Winter Classic with 
piglet races and fireworks going off and horses during the Star Spangled Banner and everything else and, and three people working plus a roving reporter and everything else. There wasn't time to get everything in, including Raddock's story. He played in the game. So I was hoping for another opportunity and that came during the Stanley Cup final, but unfortunately he was hurt. So I thought if Dallas wins the Stanley Cup, he's going to be back out for the cup presentation and he's going to get his chance to lift the cup. Maybe I can at least make a mention of it then. And that didn't happen either. You may know the story yourself, but I did not. And this would probably not happen in our culture, but it did in the Czech Republic when he was growing up. Single mom family, mom working, uh, he had uh, an affinity and a love for hockey at a young age, not unusual story yet. But his abilities in hockey were seen by a team, I would guess 60 miles or so, an hour and a half or so away from where they lived. How could he develop those skills? He certainly couldn't do it with his mom commuting him back and forth for practices and games. Couldn't happen that way. The team had a connection with a hotel in the city. And although this may not be permitted by, by child laws in our country, it was permitted there. And so after a discussion between mom and child, at age 11, he went to that city, lived alone in the hotel, got himself to school, got himself to practices, played for the team, and was there for four years. And so, of course, one of my questions for him was, at age 11, what could that have possibly been like? And he said, I was very lonesome, especially the first few weeks after it happened. Well, I guess I'm trying to remember what my life was like at age 11. It was certainly not like that, but it was very important for him and it was very important for her to yield to his love for the sport, but how hard that must have been for the mom. And yet he came to North America and it's my understanding when he came there to play in North America, he had no knowledge of English. And so here again is a guy who grows up quickly like so many others have, but a most unusual story for a kid that young to be alone and to be alone for a long period of time. Now, that doesn't mean that he never saw his mom again. No, they saw each other some, but the frequency of those visits was not like any normal family. And yet he talks to his mom every day. And I was going to mention her name if he raised that Stanley Cup that night, but that never came about. And my time in broadcasting play-by-play -play is over. But I get to do essays and maybe someday down the road, I'll get a chance to talk about people like him. Mm, I love that. Um... It's it's fascinating because when you talk to players like you do, it, I think to get to that level um, in the NHL, almost every player has to have some version of an exceptional story, and it's, and it's just getting it out of them, right? Like you don't you don't get to the NHL by accident, and you know that that story struck me of a conversation we had on here with with Brent Burns and talking about he would just sit by the highway, you know, at that age and wait for his dad to pick him up, you know, on this major highway and. 
and you know the the lengths he would go at this young age to to achieve his dreams it's it's mind-boggling and i love that you're able to draw that out of these players well i had help uh at least learning about it uh because i wouldn't have learned about it had someone uh in the dressing room not tipped me off about it but once i learned about it i thought i've got to talk to this guy and see what that life was like what growing up he had to do and what what sacrifice his mom had to make um, for this all to happen. But uh, good for both of them that it turned out that way. Um, good for both of them. Um, all right, let's take one last break. And then I've got a question. I, I've got a, a, a planted question from my dad. That's when we're going to start <laughs> with good. the break. <laughs> oh, always <laughs> good to have dad's questions. <laughs> yes, I love that. So we'll, we'll, we'll be right back. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, so I was mentioning to my dad, who was a big sports fan, that we were going to have this conversation. And he said, you got to ask Doc, and, and you know, I don't know what, what goes through people's mind when they're watching games. you got to ask Doc, how does he know who's on the ice? And I'm like, I don't know. I He's like that. Seems to be the hardest thing as a as a hockey play by play guy to track who's on because of the constant line changes. It was one of the real challenges of doing the games from home, because mm -hmm. I was getting the same picture that people at home were getting, and so players spilling over the boards you usually could not track at all. But that is one thing that you can you can do when you're in the arena because. So often when the puck is dumped in from center ice, the guy that dumps it in heads for the bench. And there's not much that's going to happen bad when there's a defenseman holding the puck behind the net because he's often waiting in a matchup situation. He's waiting for his teammates to change too. And that gets you the opportunity to, while he's holding mm -hmm. it and what the camera is showing is him standing behind the net by himself, 
Uh, it gives you a chance to pick up the numbers of players who are coming over the boards. Uh, those players are always facing you, which makes it a little bit more of a challenge, but you can see their backs at that point. Normally, when the game's going on, you can't see their backs that well. You're working off a four-inch sleeve number, which is a greater challenge when, when the game is accelerated. But while they're holding that puck behind the net, you've got a good chance at picking them up. The guys yeah. I admire are the guys that call horse races because <laughs> they have to learn and then lose the names of the horses uh, of, a, of a dozen races or maybe 14 or 15 in the course of one afternoon or evening. And if I get an assist wrong, there's not somebody pounding on the door wanting to break my arm for me. Right. Right. You've done all the sports. You mentioned football. And I loved the story about you memorizing every single player on the football roster and then someone saying, hey, you really just need to know these <laughs> <laughs> Talk about preparation. Like that's that's how you prepare for a moment like that. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's the fun part, really, because of the collection of stories and 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 the fun of gee, if I can get that in, I think people will enjoy that. Those that's the fun part of of getting ready for a game, um, and also seeing players in the morning at the skate, and that was the fun that got taken away by the pandemic. Uh, when, as I mentioned earlier, when we got to the 7th or 8th of March and all of a sudden the rules changed on how we could be around and see players. Um, I, I butchered Patrick Kane's goal badly uh, when he clinched the Stanley Cup in Philadelphia. Uh, like uh, other guys who were doing the game, but that's no excuse. As Patrick Waugh said, when he let in seven against Detroit, I'm paid to get those. And I didn't have a clear view of it. I got the S and C and score out, but I didn't get the rest of the words out. I pulled back and I probably shouldn't have done that in retrospect. So anyway, the next fall, when I saw Patrick for the first time after the celebration of the Stanley Cup, I said, so what did you see? And he said, I let the shot from the left circle go and it disappeared under the goalie's pad. And then as I got closer to the net, I saw it was in the net. And I looked at the referee and he wasn't doing anything. And I realized my job was to go to the other end and sell it all the way. So that's what I was doing and I was selling it. Um, mm. And the guys on the bench weren't sure whether they should come over the boards uh, because they might get penalized. But whenever I'm asked the most embarrassing moment I had describing games, that was it. Because a cup-clinching goal that ends the season and you don't get another game until next October, yeah, that's a long time to agonize for sure. Mm. <laughs> it's funny, Doc, because I always thought, I, you know, that's that moment where he throws his gloves in the air, I always thought it was because he was the only one in the building who knew it was a goal. I didn't realize he was selling it. Yeah. I love that. He was busy selling. And the other thing <laughs> the other thing that was interesting and I didn't learn this until the next season is that and we you know had there been goal judges like in the old days behind the glass behind the net it wouldn't have been an issue. They had to turn the light on, but they were not authorized yeah. to do that. The goal judge that night was sitting on the end line up in the press box with the red goal button and his thumb right near it as usual, but he is not mm -hmm. authorized to turn that light on until the referee points to the net, which he never did. And yet, that goal judge, up all of those flights of stairs in the rafters, saw the puck go in 
but could not, according to the rules, turn the light on because he had mm. to wait for the referee to point. Or we oh, could have incredible. we could have sold it really well, and Patrick wouldn't have had to. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, all right. Two last topics, because before we wrap up, one is you mentioned your you've done the Olympics. You've mentioned your favorite Olympics is my favorite. So I, and so I'm going to indulge because that the, the Vancouver Olympics are is the best sporting event I've ever covered. Um, what made that that particular Olympics so special to you? Well, for one, I've never been a very good sleeper on international Olympics because of the adjustment in time. And this was only three hours and it was like no adjustment at all. And I think the players in the NHL felt the same way. And then the competition was spirited and, and all throughout uh, the rivalry between the United States and Canada, both in men's and women's hockey, was very prominent. And when the U.S. Yeah. won the first match between themselves in Canada in men's hockey. That really set the stage for a big finish, especially when they wound up in the gold medal game against each other. And I think the gold medal game epitomized the great parts of the sport because you get to the final minute of a game that means everything. No one can leave because the outcome is in doubt. The goalie's pulled and then all of a sudden the game is tied. And then the Zamboni glides back and forth, and there's all that anticipation of overtime and who's going to end it. And it turns out it was Sidney Crosby. And it was after the game was over, Pierre Maguire did most of the games for us, but on that day he was working for the Canadian telecast, and we had the right to use any interviews, and we had time before the medal presentation to televise his interview both with Crosby and uh, with Ryan Miller, the U.S. goaltender. And they both were just wonderful in how they spoke for not only themselves and their team, but about the sport and what gentlemen that they were. And in the U.S. it was very important how the game was played how it ended, not necessarily who won, but how it ended, and that those two guys spoke so well. Because 27 million people in the United States watched that. And so 27 million people were either hockey fans or were not. But they got to see the best our sport had, not only in the way mm -hmm. it was played, but also in how our athletes conducted themselves. And I was very proud to be around hockey that day. Doc, your teammates have mentioned how they know certain points of a game. That's your moment. And I imagine that gold medal game and those final seconds and minutes were your moment on some level from your perspective. How aware are you in those times that 27 million people are watching? This is an all-timer and you know you have to you have to kind of meet that challenge i'm not sure uh, i would i never knew what the audience was until a few days later but i was you're very aware of moments like that just like uh referees have told me that that they want to make sure that they don't call an unnecessary penalty they want to make sure that the goal that is scored is clean and that and that characterized by officials goes all the way back to the days before replay and you want to make sure that the call that you have is like Sidney Crosby's goal in the Olympics and not like Patrick Kane's in Philadelphia 
you want to make sure that the best that you have to offer is there. And yet, when it gets into one overtime or two or three or four, you don't know when that moment's going to come. So you wind up fully concentrating your best all throughout that time. And to their credit, your partners realize that that time is constant. And so they rarely say anything unless play stops or unless there is inconsequential action like line changing while play is on and a defenseman holding the puck behind the net, and then they give you a breather that you need. Uh, my teammates are, are fully um, qualified as teammates in the fullest sense of the word because they have been so good, and I've, I've never had a bad one in all those years. I've always had great ones. How exhausted are you after those kind of games? You ha- like, you have to be on. I, you have to be exhausted. Mentally. Yeah, you, you do. You wind up sleeping pretty well after a game like that's over. <laughs> yeah, you, you, do come, you, you do come down a lot. But, uh, you know, we have a lot of people that help us in the booth. And uh, a woman named Leanne Marks came up years ago with, uh, with peanut butter for multiple overtime games. And I realized that was quick energy for me. And so hmm. she took care of a lot of those details to get us in and out of arenas, but also to provide us with food. And at one time, when he was more into sugar, Eddie Olchek got ice cream and I got peanut butter. That's great. That's great. All right, last thing, Doc. When I was a kid reporter, I was working at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and the Detroit Tigers were coming through town, and it was Ernie Harwell's last season. And so I thought it would, you know, Ernie Harwell who was the Tigers announcer, got his start with the Atlanta Crackers, and he offered up to, you know, after we asked him, he was willing to spend some time talking about his start. And it made such an impact on me that this guy who was bigger than life in my eyes as, you know, growing up in Detroit and listening to him uh, would take that time and share his story about his time in Atlanta and his start. So I was not surprised to read you had a similar interaction with him what was it like to get his advice at the time you did in your career? Well, he was probably a life changer for me. Despite mm-hmm. the Dale Carnegie course, he was the living embodiment of not only that, but also the faith that he had. He lived every day. And I got a chance to see that. I asked him to be my non-academic advisor for my doctoral degree at Bowling Green. I was doing a dissertation and there had never been one done on play-by-play announcers of baseball and the history of their work. And I asked him to not only provide a couple of interviews uh, for me, sitting across from him at Tiger Stadium, but also to read uh, the finished product There were five guys with PhDs that would sign off on it, but he would be the guy that would look over the survey that I was sending to other announcers and also read the finished product and have a copy of it. And he agreed. And I can't imagine how busy he was because it was during the season. Uh, But he probably did it like you said. He probably did it for a lot of guys and a lot lot of gals that... We're working on all kinds of projects. He said yes, because that was how he lived out his faith, and that was the kind of person that he was. Um, But anyway, we walked uh, down the concourse, and 
there were two people that were preparing to work because it was two hours before the game. Now, I, I wasn't even hearing any bats hitting balls. I don't think the home team had even started batting practice yet. But a woman was preparing hot dogs and another man was setting up his podium to put out scorecards and pencils for when the gates did open. And you could tell by the look on their faces, they were hoping that the two of us walking down there, that Ernie would come over and say hello. And he didn't disappoint either one of them. And he knew their first and last names. And he may have made small talk, but it was very important to him that they did. And that was one of many life lessons that I learned from either being next to him or reading his work or reading about him. And he was a focal person in my life. Mm. Well, I know you've had the same impact on countless others in the world of hockey, almost to a T with that. So thank you for all you've done for our sport, Doc. Thank you so much. This has been fun. Your father, tell me about his impact on you. Oh, man. He, what I would say about my dad is he gave me great advice, and it's it's not too dissimilar from what I imagine you would give. He, he was a teacher, but he also did various jobs in Detroit, you know, worked on the lines, worked in laid out late shifts, very manual labor. And he said, look, you know, I, I did a lot of things I didn't like. And the, uh, this kind of the key to me was finding something where I, I loved going to work. And I know everyone says this, right? But to have your dad give you this green light to chase a job that uh, there was zero pressure from him and my family, it was do something that you're going to enjoy that follows your passions. And we're going to support it as a family because he had lived that life and he had tried different things and realized how difficult jobs could be. Um, and it made a huge impact on me and, and allowed me to chase this, this dream of being in sports media. And I don't know if I would have done it with, you know, you want, you want your parents' approval, right? And Yeah. You know, that parallels someone else that I talked to in hockey once. Um, I was doing a Devils game at Joe Lewis Arena, and they said... Um, Pick somebody to interview on Detroit because we need somebody for the second intermission. The first intermission was always a Devils. And in those years, sometimes Detroit would overwhelm New Jersey on, uh, in Joe Lewis by the time the second intermission was done. So they, they felt we better have a Devil on in the first intermission because people may turn us off by the time we get to the second. <laughs> so anyway, I chose Nicholas Lidstrom. Mm. And it was just after... The survey had come out, the Hockey News survey, that said that the players chose Nick Lidstrom the most respected player in the sport. And so anyway, I'm sitting there and, and you know Nick. I mean, he's, he's the, 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 most gr the greatest gentleman who was also one of the best players in history. And yes. so I said, Nick, I don't know how to ask you this, but... I've got the hockey news survey here, and it says you are the most respected player in hockey. So, and then I paused for a moment, and I started searching for how to finish the sentence in a question. Mm -hmm. um, did you have good parents, Nick? <laughs> and he laughed, and he said, I sure did. And they didn't encourage me other than to do what I really wanted to do. They didn't insist that I be an athlete. They didn't insist that I be somebody that went beyond regular school. They just wanted me to be 
doing something that I really liked, which sounds to me very much what your father asked you to do. So you parallel Nick Lidstrom, not bad company. <laughs> That's pretty good company. Nick is, is continues to be. He is one of, they call him the perfect human for a reason. Yeah. They, um, I'm sure glad I got to know him. He's absolutely, my favorite Nick Lidstrom moment ever is we're covering a, 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 I think they were playing the Penguins in the playoffs. And, and um, for some reason, he, there had been a, a five on three that lasted like two seconds. It was irrelevant to the game. And so we're in the game and it's this huge moment. I think Detroit had even lost. Um, and so everyone's asking questions and a reporter from the back of the scrum goes to Nick, hey, what impact did that, that five and three have? And it was really, Doc, it was inconsequential. Right. Like, you know, any any player who was just coming off a loss, it would have been completely understandable if he would have snapped and been like, did you even watch the game? Like this, that was the biggest nothing moment. And Nick was so gracious about it. He's like, you know, it was it was only two or three seconds. And, you know, we did, we did what we had to, and didn't snap. It was just completely professional. And I've been in there where you just ask a dumb question. And yeah. you, you, the second you ask it, you're embarrassed. And... I, like I was, I, like I don't. In that moment, I'm like, what? A, what a great person this guy is. I've, uh, you know, the we all have our, our uh, we all have our favorite 500, and he's right there yeah. near the top. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing this, Doc. It's wonderful. This was to, awesome. You know, there isn't a person alive that doesn't like talking about themselves. But it was wonderful to share this time with you, and uh, I hope we get to do it again sometime. Uh, talk about brazen, I'm inviting myself back. But no, sometime <laughs> again. Uh, maybe maybe uh, Kevin will do another book, and I'll have my name on it again, like I did this time, and we'll have a chance to talk again. I hope so. It would be my pleasure. Just give Kevin's font a little bit bigger on the next one. Yeah, we'll, we'll make sure that it's equal. <laughs> Thank you so much, Doc. This was great. Okay, thank you. I want to thank Doc Emmerich for joining the show again. What a completely beautiful and sweet human being he is. Uh, just, uh, I, It will not be the same in dressing rooms without him. It will not be the same watching big games without him. But he absolutely has earned his retirement and the rest and whatever he wants to do next in his life. Again, I would encourage you to check out his book called Off Mike, How a Kid from Basketball Crazy Indiana Became America's NHL Voice. Eddie O to the forward, of course, right? Who else? And he wrote this book with Kevin Allen, uh, formerly of USA Today. So, Doc, thanks again for doing the pod. It was it was so great. We will have him on. I Hopefully, next time I can go up to his place in, in Michigan and, and maybe hang out with the horses and do something in person. That would be so cool to do when we get them back on the podcast, which we absolutely will do it. All right, last thing. Before we wrap up, make sure you check out Two Man Advantage with Pierre Lebrun and Scott Burnside. They had Dallas Stars head coach Rick Bonus on the pod. Uh, Rick's great, and we saw how good a coach he is in guiding the Stars to the Stanley Cup final. Uh, That was great. Also, check out the comment section for each podcast episode. If you have the Athletic app, which you all, I certainly hope, do at this point, um, you can go ahead, go on the app, and um, comment on the episode. Let me know. Get me some feedback. Let me know what you think. Guests you want to see on here. Um, I jump in there when I see them, and we'll respond to the comments. So, So check that out. And as always, please rate and subscribe the full 60 on Apple. It helps out tremendously. You can take a second to do that. 
All right, that's it. Thanks again to Doc for doing the podcast. Thank you for listening and have a great week.